This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Cultural institutions around the country are making major changes to follow federal regulations regarding Native American remains and artifacts, and Cincinnati's museums are no exception. Today, we're going to talk about the history behind these artifacts, the federal requirements that museums must comply with, and whether enough action is being taken. Joining me in this recorded interview are Urban Native Collective Executive Director Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard. Welcome back, Brianna. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Cincinnati Art Museum Director Cameron Kitchen. Thanks for being here, Cameron. Oh, it's a pleasure to be together. And Cincinnati Museum Center George Rivashel, curator, curator of archaeology, Bob Genheimer. Welcome, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here, too. The Cincinnati Art Museum and Cincinnati Museum Center are financial supporters of Cincinnati Public Radio. Cameron, how did museums and cultural institutions come to possess these remains and artifacts? Talk to us about the history of all this. Sure, I'm happy to. In the case of the Cincinnati Art Museum more broadly, certainly I would look to our colleagues uh, to fill in on their own histories. The Cincinnati Art Museum was founded by the Women's Art Museum Association in the 19th century in Cincinnati in the 1870s. And in that time, museums um, worked and behaved quite differently. And some of the earliest collections of the museum came to us either by trade or by gift from collectors across the Midwest who had brought together into their possession objects that came from indigenous tribes and and indigenous nations. Um, Many of those came to the art museum early in our history and were some of the first collections of the Cincinnati Art Museum. And do you know how those were acquired from indigenous people, or is there any history about that? There's very little history in that time. We can make suppositions. We can fill in some blanks based on what we know were collecting practices at the time, but we know very little for sure. Mm -hmm. Bob, what about for the Cincinnati Museum Center? Well, ours is a little bit different. So uh, we have both ancestors and NAGPRA cultural items there as well. So uh, the museum started doing big-time excavations at these late pre-contact sites right after World War II, uh, and they were digging up burials. Uh, in fact, they were targeting burials. It's what they mm-hmm. did at the time. We don't do this anymore. So we have those sorts of collections. We also have field collections from other institutions, uh, people who have donated those collections to us, sometimes to put it into the NAGPRA pipeline. Uh, and we have private donations. Uh, we People give us stuff. Every once in a while, people will call us up and said, I have a Native American skeleton that my grandfather dug up at a site. Will you take it? And we say yes, because then it goes into the NAGPRA pipeline. You've mentioned the NAGPRA pipeline. Let's talk about that. What is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and, and what's it supposed to do, Bob? Well, it was enacted initially in 1990. Uh, and it, the reason they did it was to return ancestors, ancestral remains, funerary objects, items of cultural patrimony, sacred items back to the tribes where they belong. Uh, so it was an elaborate process. You had to do summaries. Uh, you had to do inventories. Uh, but where it got bogged down was that it, it wasn't clear who was, who was affiliated with who. So if you look at Ohio... Uh, We don't have any federally recognized tribes. They're all in an arc going around from New York to the lower Great Lakes, down in Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri. Uh, They all left here, not of their own accord. Most of them were pushed out. So So it's sort of a vacant area. So it's a little more difficult to determine who's affiliated with who. Uh, So we had to be quite creative uh, to figure it out. And at some point, Negra said, 
it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, we're going to go with geography. If these tribes were here, that's who you talk to. Brianna, what are your thoughts on that, just about this history and also this, this federal law that was passed in 1990 to try to reunite tribes with these remains and these artifacts? Yeah. So, you know, on these new updates um, specifically, um, you know, they do place appropriate emphasis on respecting tribal expertise and securing free prior and informed consent. And as an organization, we at Urban Native Collective do fill a vital gap advocating for urban indigenous communities on issues just like this repatriation and reconciliation, while also providing cultural education to foster greater understanding. Um, And we aim to amplify indigenous voices, Native voices, preserving our cultural heritage, ensuring historical accuracy, and advising institutions on how to respectfully care and repatriate these ancestral remains. You know, we also... I think it's also important to mention that Urban Native Collective strongly condemns the harmful practices of the past, including archaeological grave robbing that's disturbed Native American burial sites and sacred grounds and just sort sort of paint a perspective. And it's really amazing to see these federal legislations moving in a direction that amplifies uh, free prior and informed consent from the tribal communities and Native Hawaiian organizations as well. Mm-hmm. Bob mentioned that there had been some complications in trying to repatriate sure. these remains, these objects for many years because of trying to identify which tribes they were connected with. What are your thoughts on that? Are, is, is How complicated has this been? How are, how are folks working through that now? Sure. And and I do want to note that I've only been with Urban Native Collective for relatively short time since last April. Sure. And our organization is relatively new in the region as well, you know, uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can only speak as much as what our organization has been involved with. But I do echo that it is an incredibly complex situation and looking to um, the tribes and the Native uh, Hawaiian organizations and descendants as the experts in this regard is, is crucial because of how complex it is and um, echoing that we are an, a region, a state without any federally recognized tribes or federal reservations only emphasizes the complexity. However, there are resources available at the national level to ideally aid in, in, in making this process um, easier for museums and institutions so that they know um, what next steps to take. Mm-hmm. Cameron, Bob mentioned that this uh, federal law was passed in 1990, um, and he talked about the complexities of, of making this happen. But what are some of the other reasons that so many remains of Native Americans, funerary objects, and these cultural items are still in possession of museums and cultural institutions? Right. So our institution's history is that over the early um, years of the museum, and some of it was even in, in trade with the Smithsonian Institution of sending objects that were um, made here in Cincinnati that were that were contemporary objects at the time um, in exchange to build collections here in Cincinnati. But we took a major turn in our institutional history in the early 1990s. And the first NAGPRA regulation and all the, the assembly of all of the inventories that allowed us to um, to know a bit 
more, about the 33,000 objects that were within the museum vaults. We then were, were able to organize an exchange with another institution in Cincinnati that had a more direct mission to be able to study and to learn from these objects with the public, which was the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History. It existed at that time on the on the hillsides in, in Eden Park around Elsinore Gate, where, where Elsinore and Gilbert Avenue come together. And so the vast majority of the collections were transferred to the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History, leaving just about 2,000 objects that were very specifically chosen to be design objects and objects that could inform art history. And so that that vast majority heading over to the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History ultimately became part of the collections that that, that Bob U. Shepherd at the um, at the at the um, the Cincinnati Museum Center um, as part of that whole consolidation of museums at, at Union Terminal. So those 2,000 objects that remained um, within the within the hands of the Cincinnati Art Museum curators um, were then essentially advertised to 237 um, tribal representatives from, that were represented within the collection. Inventories were sent out um, and requests for to say say contact us if there's um, if there's information that you can help us with or that we can help understand more about these objects. Now what's happened, we welcome entirely, um, is the history of NAGPRA is that the regulations now say um, free, and, and, and I think your phrase is exactly right, free and informed prior consent for exhibition and display of such objects. So we um, believe strongly that, that those objects now that are within the Art Museum collection deserve um, further study, further knowledge, and free and informed prior consent to be able to exhibit those objects. So does that mean this is more about communicating with uh, tribes and getting that consent more so than returning the objects? I mean, where does where does it all stand? It's yes and. It's okay. both, which okay. is that, that we have, even in our recent history within the last 15 years, returned objects upon request that have gone through the, the formal NAGPRA process. And so we have a, a recent history of, of restitution of objects. We also have a very recent history that's, um, that's quite wonderful of exhibiting contemporary Contemporary and modern indigenous art makers within the Cincinnati Art Museum. We're talking in this recorded interview about how museums are dealing with a federal requirement to return Native American remains and objects to tribes in the U.S. Bob, what's that been like from the Museum Center's perspective? You obviously had a much larger collection uh, based on what Cameron just said with the Natural History Museum and, and the other museums that were, are within the Museum Center. What has that process looked like? Is, has, has returning um, remains and, and objects been part of it? Is it more about getting consent to display them? Walk us through that. It's it's more about uh, consultation. And then to get back what Cameron just said, when he was talking about the 1990 transfer, I was hired by the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History to make that transfer happen. In fact, I worked at the art museum for six months uh, doing cataloging. So th that collection is part of uh, what we've been dealing with, what we've been exhibiting, and so forth. Uh, what is happening now uh, is that we're, we're, we're taking a second look at things that we have on, on exhibit, or we have research requests for, or interpretation, and even images. Uh, so we have a lot, of, as most museums do, we have a lot of things that are referred to as found in collections. We don't know their history. In the past, people didn't keep great records. So when we look at those things, they don't say where they're from. So it might be a pipe or something. And if we didn't have information saying it was a funerary object, 
uh, we would go ahead and exhibit it. Uh, these new regulations say, no, you've got to take a second look at that uh, because negative evidence is not good enough. Uh, if you know through your work and your experience that these types of artifacts can be found within a funerary context, then you have to use caution. Either take them off exhibit or talk to your tribal partners and ask them their advice on that. Uh, and as I think a lot of people have simply in, the, in the, this recent past here in the last month have said, let's take things down or let's cover things until we can figure this out. Mm-hmm. Brianna, can you talk with us about the importance of this work and just uh, what it means to have remains or funerary objects or other sacred artifacts uh, on display or even stored as as part of a museum collection? Why is this so important to to indigenous people? You know, outside of it being federal uh, law, um, you know, we view these acts such as grave robbing and disturbing Native American burial sites and some of the ways in which items have been found in the past as an egregious human rights violation. You know, these are impacting humans, indigenous people today. And it's important, too, that we continue the conversations around how indigenous and Native American people are, are here today and that we're dealing with um, we're dealing with items that, that belong to, to these peoples, these tribes. And, um, you know, we as an institution, as an organization, just urge museums and universities to embrace this moment, to build trust, to review their past acquisition policies, to rectify or reconcile harmful ones and collaborate on repatriation efforts. Um, But of course, you know, significant resources are needed in order to do that. And we as an organization recognize that and are are open to and have guidelines on our website about how to come alongside institutions to do that. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. And later in the program, we'll talk about a new podcast called The Art Of. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We're continuing our recorded conversation about how museums are dealing with a federal requirement to return Native American remains and artifacts to tribes and whether enough is being done. My guests are Urban Native Collective Executive Director Brianna Mazzolini-Blanchard, Cincinnati Art Museum Director Cameron Kitchen, and Cincinnati Museum Center George Rivichel, Curator of Archaeology Bob Genheimer. Bob, tell us a little bit more about the Museum Center's NAGPRA program. We've talked about this Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. How has that worked at the Museum Center? Well, we started doing uh, consultations in 2016, so we're entering our eighth year here. And as Brianna said, this is a complex thing. NAGPRA is very procedural. Uh, There's all these steps you have to do. So people think, why is it taking this long? It really does take this long to do it. Our tribal partners have asked us for very specific information, inventories. We've been a collecting institution for over 200 years. It's kind of difficult to do that really, really quickly. But uh, uh, currently we have 17 tribal partners who have met with us uh, at the museum here in Cincinnati. Uh, We have an additional 13 that we have met remotely, most of it due to the pandemic. Uh, So we have built these strong relationships uh, with tribes. Uh, A lot of them in Oklahoma, some of them in New York, some of them are lower Great Lakes. Uh, So uh, we have this, and we're using that, uh, those relationships now to work on exhibits. 
which is one of the benefits of NAGPRA. We never talked to Native Americans before. We're talking to them. Uh, so we're talking to them about interpretation, doing exhibits, other stuff, getting permission, actually our research, having them involved in the research that we do. So there's a silver lining uh, behind all of this. And so we just recently did our first notice of inventory completion uh, that was um, uh, sent to National NAGPRA in December of 2023. It was published in the Federal Register in, ja in January of 2024. Uh, and as of two days ago, that specific port of that collection can now be repatriated. So when, when people, I think, evaluate NAGPRA only on the basis of what you repatriate it, they're not looking at it the right way. There is all these other steps that you have to do, uh, and, you know, build these relationships with tribes, ask them who we should consult with, finish the documentation. So we have another batch of sites that is also going to go out uh, very soon. Uh, and more by the end of the year. So we have finally reached that threshold with our tribal partners of doing the repatriations or at least making them happen. Mm -hmm. And Brianna, this has taken a lot of work, uh, many years. I mean, this law was passed in 1990. Sure. A lot of years have passed. Um, what do you think about how the responsibility for this work is shared by museums and by tribes. It sounds like it. if it's working, it has to be a very collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot of work, not only for these institutions, but all, also for the people who are trying to consult the institutions. Is, is the balance right there in terms of who's shouldering what parts of this work? Yeah, so I think it's important to acknowledge again that, that this is a federal regulation that is a necessity that is a federal law that that institutions and museums and anyone any institution getting federal money has to adhere to and so the responsibility is on these non-native institutions and so first and foremost that should be acknowledged and then how we're these institutions are bringing in the tribal nations and the Native Hawaiian organizations to be a part of those conversations is crucial and outlined in the new federal legislation. And I, I to echo what Bob said, you know, it takes time to develop those relationships so that you aren't rushing, so that these resource, these artifacts, these resources aren't ending up somewhere they shouldn't be. And so that five-year deadline allows a bit more of that opportunity to build those relationships with contemporary indigenous tribal nations and Native Hawaiian organizations. And, you know, from our perspective, if you will, sort of a, a call to action to these institutions is to allocate resources and dedicate the necessary resources to inventory updates, consultation processes, and educational efforts to inform the public and urban Native populations about NAGPRA. Um, you know, public engagement, develop programs and materials to educate the public about the importance of NAGPRA compliance and the role of museums in protecting and repatriating cultural heritage, and then to collaborate with Native tribes to strengthen those partnerships with Native American tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations, ensuring that their voices are heard and respected in all matters related to their ancestral and cultural items. This collaborative approach is essential for meaningful compliance and the respectful handling of these repatriation cases. Mm -hmm. 
Cameron, I know that the Cincinnati Art Museum has been focused on on modern, more contemporary exhibits too, But and I want to talk about that. But before we do, what are the implications of this for other uh, cultures too, for, for African art, for Egyptian art, for those, for, for um, artifacts and remains that came from other cultures? Do you think there are broader implications of for this conversation in terms of repatriation. Right. I think there certainly could be, and beyond repatriation, which is one specific action, there are many other actions as well. Um, The Cincinnati Art Museum, several years ago, adopted a path that we've titled Reconciliation and Inclusion. And I appreciate you used the word reconciliation several times in in your remarks. For us, it's a very thoughtful approach that is um, reconciliation drawn from great faith traditions. Um, The idea is defined as, as putting two or more groups of people into right relationship with one another, which actually bears very strong relevance to to this work that's ongoing um, today. So reconciliation asks us to not only to help reconcile with our own histories at uh, museums, but also to help Cincinnati reconcile with its own history because we have a a job to do as a teaching institution and we need to understand Cincinnati's history. Beyond that inclusion, the idea of bringing in voices that should be within the conversation and people who should be at the table as a museum is making decisions about what to do with cultures that relate to their own ancestry and heritage. And so as we embark on that work and as as we continue forward, which actually reflects much of our own institutional history, but with now a much stronger emphasis and intentionality, it bears relevance across many cultures. We have 6,000 years of human history within the collections, and those collections, they cross-pollinate. People see similarities from one culture to another and find what what is common within humanity. They also find differences. And so one of the the great joys of this work is in collaborating closely with tribal representatives, and we should say lineal descendants as well, because not every one of these tribes are are federally recognized as as a technical nature. So the lineal descendants as well, to ask, how would you like your culture as you know it to be taught and represented, rather than to say, first, this is how we want to do it, is to ask the questions and to listen to the answers. And when we hear the answers to those questions, creative solutions abound. In cases across the country, there have been, um, there have been objects that have, that have been sent to the, to the um, requesting tribal elders or to the lineal descendant that then have been loaned back to museums to say, that, say yes, we believe that you should exhibit these objects, just not the sacred objects or the funerary objects or the human remains, because we want to teach art history as well. So we look for that collaboration, that hand-holding across many cultures. Mm-hmm. And then it's important to celebrate contemporary artists, too, it sounds like. It is. And certainly um, our recent relationship and, and with the Urban Native Collective um, has, has truly been, been a wonderful sort of set of new insights into how we should think about contemporary makers. Um, our exhibition at the Art Museum right now, Clearly Indigenous, is an exhibition that tells the story of glassmakers, contemporary and modern glassmakers who have 
a indigenous heritage. And it's not just a footnote within their work. Much of the work reflects objects from specific cultures, from specific iconography. Some of it is just, just glorious objects that, that, that come from a, a talented art maker that is of, of many different backgrounds. Now, the story, as it, as it goes, it brings a, a glassmaker, Dale Chihuly, and how he, he was able to teach within, um, that when he was invited in, teach within um, the tribal art-making communities to a new, a new talent, a new skill, and then suddenly saw the dedication of those art-makers surpass his own. Um, it's really, truly a wonderful story, and we invite you to the art museum to see it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I want to get your thoughts on this, Bob. There, this this is beyond. This goes beyond repatriation, as we've talked about. This is uh, this is also about asking permission, asking for um, collaboration, and how objects are displayed. How important is it to have that permission and that collaboration, just so that we, as a society, can still collectively experience this art or these artifacts and better understand history, cultures, the important roles people played. I mean, where where do you find that balance in terms of being very respectful to the cultures that, that we're talking about here, but also helping to educate others? Is, is that important? Yeah, so I, I think as uh, Cameron said, we, we need to look at uh, what we're saying, who's saying it. Uh, uh, most museums today are asking the big question when they develop an exhibit, um, whose voice is going to be in this exhibit? Whose story are we going to tell? And in the past, museums told their own story uh, because most of their visitors were like them. Uh, it's not that way anymore. So we constantly ask, whose stories do we want to tell? And if, if it's only our own story, if we're doing an archaeology exhibit and it's only us, we're not doing a good job we have to bring all these other stories and voices into that interpretation as well. What do you think, Brianna? Is that important to be able to celebrate these cultures with without exploiting these cultures? You know, I love the phrase, nothing about us without us. And I think that's a really important way to look at the work that these institutions are doing, not only when we're talking about NAGPRA, but when we talk about interacting with cultures that are not our own throughout all of society, whose voices are you bringing in and are you talking about or working on a project um, that is meant to amplify a voice that you have yet to bring to the table? And so, you know, nothing about us without us, I think, is a, a really helpful reminder, whether we're talking about indigenous people to Turtle Island, to North America or beyond. Well, I've been talking with Urban Native Collective Executive Director Brianna Mazzolini-Blanchard, Cincinnati Art Museum Director Cameron Kitchen, and Cincinnati Museum Center George Rivichel, Curator of Archaeology Bob Genheimer. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we'll hear about a new podcast called The Art Of. This is Cincinnati Edition. <laughs>